0: Hey, kings and queens, it's your girl, Valencia Griffin Wallace, and welcome to Define You Radio, episode 196 with our wonderful guest, Miss Tarkesha Wallace. Welcome to the Define You Radio podcast, where class is always in session. Get ready for the life lessons, tips, and stories to help you define your life. And now, your host, the drill sergeant would love, Valencia Griffin Wallace. On today's session, I get the chance to interview Miss Tarkesha Wallace. And no, we're not related. Tarkisha is a licensed professional counselor who works with individuals and families who are seeking to work through life issues or make some form of positive change in their life. That is awesome. Last year in October, she released her first book, Little Girl Arise, in which she details her journey of of losing her son what she gained from that and the purpose in it pens and papers ready class is now in session Thanks so much for tuning in to Define You Radio. I'm your host, Valencia Griffin Wallace. Define You Radio is sponsored by the Define You Queens Movement and the Move Retreat. To find out more, visit valenciagwallace.com. In today's session, we will be interviewing Miss Tarkisha Wallace. And no, I know what you guys are thinking, but we're not related. <laughs> <laughs> no. She is a licensed professional counselor and the author of Little Girl Arise. She works with others that are ready to work through life issues or make positive changes in their lives. So with that being said, pens and papers ready, classes now in session. Welcome Ms. Tarkisha, to the show. Thank you Ms. Valencia, I appreciate you having me. I am, I've been excited to have you on ever since we met back in January. You have a very interesting story and I can't wait to get into you and your story. So why don't you go ahead and just explain your personal quote. God, if you wrap it in purpose, I can endure it. I'll go through it. Explain that to me. So um, oftentimes we experience um,
1: different life situations, be it crisis or tragedy, Um, and sometimes not even crisis or tragedy, but it's just those periods of chaos that sometimes really don't make sense to us while we're in the midst of it, or we feel like it's unfair, or you know, we get into that why me syndrome. And so I decided probably about a year or two ago, God, if everything that I go through, if you wrap it in purpose, if there's meaning for it, if someone, even if it's not me directly, if someone benefits for from it, I'll continue to persevere. I'll continue to weather the storm. I'll continue to go through the test, you know, but I wanted God to understand that I needed these things to make sense, at least in the end, even if while I was in it or going through it, if I didn't understand it, that at some point there was an aha moment. At some point there was purpose related to whatever that struggle or issue I was facing. So I just told God, you know, as long as you wrap everything in purpose, I'm up for the challenge. As long as there is some end result of benefit, you know, for the greater good, for the body of Christ, for my clients, colleagues, you know, my family, that God, I'll continue to weather that storm. I'll continue to stick with whatever that thing is.
0: I love that, and that's such a brave quote. Cause a lot of times, you know, we not, we're not, no, we're not going to say that, but I love that. And that shows your strength. So tell us a little bit about your biggest obstacle and how it shaped who you are today.
1: So, um, in 2005, I found out that I was expecting, it was March of 2005 that I found inside. It was my last semester of undergraduate school. And um, it just was not an ideal situation for me to be pregnant. You know, considering I was, you know, about to graduate with my bachelor's degree, you think that I'm like, okay, yeah, this is an okay time. But You have to know my mom to understand why it did not matter what stage of life I was in. It was not okay for me to be pregnant because I was not married. I was not in, I was in a committed relationship, air quotes, Hmm. you know, I was in a committed relationship, but it was not the ideal relationship. It was not the relationship that I should have been involved with. So anyway, find out that I was pregnant and, um, you know, after the big crisis of being pregnant, telling it to my mom, you know, and kind of getting past that hurdle, progressed through the the pregnancy, which was very normal. You know, I would say as a, as a first time expectant person, you know, it was a normal pregnancy until September of that year. I went into preterm labor. And I didn't exactly know what it was. I was actually I went on to work that day as normal. And when I got to work, I had some older colleagues that was like, you don't look so well. Like you need to leave and go straight to the doctor. And I remember um as I drove to the doctor, every bump I hit, every railroad track I hit, it would trigger a contraction. Of course, I'm ruling out a contraction because I was not at that point of delivery, you know, or to even be Preparing for that, so I'm ruling out contraction. And I'm just thinking, I don't know stress. I'm I wasn't exactly sure of what it, you know, what it was. So, um, get to the to the doctor, and my doctor begins to monitor me for a short while, and he immediately says, "We're taking you down the street to the hospital." At that point, I was admitted into the hospital by myself. My child's father was out out of town on business, and. Um, And I was, you know, a college student. I just had my sorority sisters, some of my fraternity brothers, some of my, you know, not really sure what's going on or what, you know, what is about to take place. All I know is that I am not due until November and this is September. Something isn't going right. So um, I stayed in that hospital five days and the doctor decided that I should go on bed rest. At that point, we decided that I moved back to Baton Rouge during those last couple of months, you know, just because my family was here um, and they'd be able to help me and take care of me. And I lived in an upstairs apartment. Now, it was a lot of reasons that I just needed to be back home during those last that last trimester. My mom told me, Keisha, do not go back to Natchitoches. You do not need to go. You're already on bed rest. At this point, I was in physical therapy. Everything said, stay put except Keisha. I wanted to go and I was determined to go. So we come up with this great game plan for me to get there. We execute the plan. The part of the plan that failed was that my child's father was supposed to meet me there to bring me back. He didn't show. He was on business again. Mm -hmm. So whenever um, I decided, because I couldn't drive, the, the whole issue was that I was not supposed to be in a car, let alone drive a car. Natchitoches is a three-hour drive. So the last night that I was there, I decided, okay, I'll get up the next morning, I'll drive to Baton Rouge, and I'll, I was going to get up really early so that I could, it could basically take me the full day to drive three hours so that I could stop and take a break. Well, that never happened because that night I went to the restroom, saw something that I should not have seen, and my family made it. priority that I get back to Baton Rouge that night and so my next game plan went into effect and we got back to Baton Rouge when I got back to Baton Rouge they take me to the hospital and I'm there again for what I'm thinking is gonna be monitoring and they get me settled in the room and just as we turn off the lights to go to bed because this is now like two three o'clock in the morning a nurse comes in and she says hey we're about to have a baby and I'm like, no, we're not. I'm like, You must be in the wrong room. You know, I said, I'm just here for monitoring. They're just trying to make sure everything is okay. Um, and she said, no, yeah. And she explained to me that my baby had not moved in the 30 minutes of me being monitored. And that was a concern for them. They did not know if he was in a sleep cycle or if something was wrong. And so they would rather to make sure that nothing nothing was wrong. So immediately, I mean, I say it in, in my book, in labor and delivery, things go super fast. It's like lightning fast. I was prepped and ready for surgery. Let me back up. You know, my very rigid mother, when we got back to Baton Rouge, she wasn't a part of the pick me up and get me to the hospital plan. She was a part of the, I told Keisha, she is gonna be coming to that hospital. Keisha needs to learn a lesson. She doesn't know everything. By the time I was prepped in minutes, my mom was on the side of their bed because the, the one thing about her, she is going to teach you a lesson, but when her children need her, she is there in a flash, you know? So we get prepped for surgery and they go and they do an emergency C-section and they deliver Jaden. I know how this is supposed to go, right? But the baby didn't cry. And they explained to me that they didn't, why they didn't let him cry, but they would let him cry shortly. I left that delivery room without hearing my baby cry. Hmm. Went to delivery, came out to recovery. I mean, out of recovery later, I woke up to surgeons and specialists in my room. And they were explaining to me that something went wrong with my baby and that he was basically on life support and asking if I wanted to take him off. And I'm very dazed and, you know, still not clear because I'm, you know, recently delivered a baby unexpectedly, you know. And so my thinking wasn't really on, but I do recall, I will never forget, I told them, do not take my baby off that ventilator. God is going to heal my baby. Five days later, my baby died. And it was a decision that I had to make of taking him off the ventilator. The part of his brain that told him to breathe and move on his own had been impacted. They, the, the way that the specialist described it, it's like he had an aneurysm, a blood vessel that should not have been there had erupted. And now, at this point, I was 23 years old. Who goes through this? Right. Who experiences this? And, and I am not the only person that had lost a child, but I felt like with my magnitude of faith, my relationship with God, and I had. I've done everything right. Although I've done things out of order, I repented, I've done everything right. My baby did not live. For me, that was life shattering. Beyond life changing, it was life shattering because I did not know how to pick up the pieces after that. After losing something, this gift that I carried, you know, finally unwrapped it and never got to enjoy it, you know, when I did get to see it, it was in an incubator, you know, connected to tubes and things that you you could barely touch it. It was so limited. And, you know, who wants to sit and watch all December long, you sit and you watch a Christmas gift under the tree, and you finally get to unwrap it on Christmas, and then it's broke. Or Hmm. it's not usable. Who wants to, to, and so that's how I felt as a mother who didn't get to bring her baby home. I did not get to take my gift that I carried. So that, that was my life's tragedy, my life's roadblock crash. It was what I felt like was stopping me from everything that I wanted in life. But I finally learned years later that it was the thing that was setting me up for greater in my life.
0: Hmm. That is an amazing story. And as a mother, I couldn't picture that part. How long um, did it take you to, I guess, like, come back to this is really happening? You know?
1: (laughs) I... You know, as a counselor, I wasn't as, I guess, understanding then as I am now. But I definitely stay stuck in denial in those stages of grief. I stay stuck in denial for a very long time. And I would say <sighs> I was in the denial of part of... Telling people I was finally okay, but I wasn't okay. So it was my, I guess the expression of my loss. It did not come out, you know, as I was always depressed or I was always sad, but I had become very angry. And anyone that I considered safe to be mean to, I mm-hmm. would. And they would just be my target. It would just be a nasty attitude. It would just be a sharp tongue, you know, or whatever I say. Or you can be talking to me, but it's like no one is speaking. I would ignore you. Could be looking right at you. Or, you know, just it really turned to bitterness and angry. And nine years following my son's death is when I finally went and I sat down. And I started to talk to someone because I was in a relationship and it started out very, very promising and it quickly plummeted. Like it just fell apart almost without any real reason. But the guy, he told me you are mean and nobody is going to stick around. If you're so mean, like, why are you so mean? And I did not even, you know, associate it with my son because Soon after he died, immediately after I went back to school, to, um, just because I needed a distraction. But I needed a distraction, so I decided to enroll in graduate school. And as a part of our graduate program, you can take advantage of the free counseling services on campus. And so I decided to go to counseling. But my counseling quickly shifted from talking about the loss of my son to talking about his dad. Because his dad and death. but then he wanted to come back. And so immediately my counseling shifted to all things about him mm. out or really addressing and unfolding those things. So anyway, um, in the nine years later, I decided to go to counseling, which was 2013. And that's where I really started the work. So I will say I held on to him in the form of angry, Anger, being angry that he was gone for nine years before I
0: truly began to release him. So how did your relationship with your mom and the father change immediately afterwards? So
1: after we got over the hurdle or the shocker of I'm pregnant, she was fine. It was an, an immediate um, shock. Like my first child, this is not supposed to happen. In the church, we knew the we knew order. We knew what was supposed to happen and what was not supposed to happen. I made this vow to God that I would not break my virginity prior to being married, you know. But after we got, we kind of got over that. That there was truly a baby in there because she was like don't tell anybody you know wait till you go to the doctor just don't say anything you know let's make sure this is real um we were okay but I will say there was a period of being angry with my mom following my son's death the last day that that on on the fifth day that he was alive there was a specialist we were going to be meeting with and this specialist was going to do a last few tests just to make sure that you know, they rule out every possibility that he would survive or there was some kind of way. If he lived, he would be a vegetable. You know, he would there would he would not be able to do anything for himself. It would basically be a burden on me without saying those words to me. And so that day they wanted me to make a decision. And so I I kind of was still In my mind, I kept saying, God needs seven days. This was day five. I'm like, God needs seven days. That was stuck in my head. Well, my mom went home because I was supposed to be discharged that night as well. She went home to prepare the house, and she called me back that evening, um, that afternoon, and she asked me had I made a decision, and I told her no. You know, I told y'all, God needs seven days. You know, what decision are you expecting me to make? my mom told me, Keisha, it's time. She said, send Jaden back to God the way God sent him to you. She said, mm-hmm. you have a beautiful baby. So I felt like in my mind, my mom should have had that same level of faith of God needed seven days. That's what I thought. Whereas, you know, so I immediately was like, well, my mama told me to do she told me that that became my attitude. Now everything in me was mad at that lady then. God did not need a ventilator. So I never displayed any outright anger. We had it out around Christmas, and I packed my things and I went back to my apartment. And because in my mind I felt like only his dad could understand. So eventually we became okay. And like I said, I never told my mom that I had any anger or any ill feelings towards her until I wrote. I forgave him immediately. But we do things like that, right? That's what I wanted. You know, if if I couldn't have my baby, at least I could have his father. I did not understand it, but I forgave him immediately. I never even allowed him to meet my mom or my dad until... I got pregnant. It's like, it's like, you can clean you up. I have to make you very presentable. And so we, we decided to get back together shortly after and it didn't work. It didn't work. And I still would try to make it. And God would definitely do things to cause a separation when we want to keep putting ourselves, jamming ourselves in. um, When he means, no, I say go left. You need to go left, let him go right, and y'all completely go. And God just kind of, I say it was God, brought a divide that caused us to really separate ways. And we're cordial to each other now. You know, we speak. I see them on social media. We don't have an everyday talk type relationship, but we um, we have a mutual respect for each other and an understanding. and he processed his way and I processed my way and I have to answer for the way that I did things. And he has to answer for the way that, you know, he handled and did things. And I, I harbor no ill feelings towards him, you know, for the way. And it's so crazy because I immediately forgave him, but it was that I love him type thing. And I didn't really know a whole lot about love at that time.
0: Hmm. It's, it's interesting you say that. Did you go through maybe, let's see if we could try to recreate the baby with him? I never did because I immediately knew that
1: I was not supposed to have a child with him. I I tell, you know, when I talk to Jaden like at the grave or when I make a post or write to him, I often say, You know, I do wonder if you would have been like your dad. And that wasn't always a good thing, you know. And I also wonder if he would have been a fatherless child, you know, because of the life his dad chose to live. Or if I would have struggled and not been able to provide for him. So I knew with his dad that there wasn't anything that I needed to try you know, to, um, recreate or, you know, I, I always felt that another baby was not going to fill Jaden's hole Mm. like that donut hole I had in my heart. i never felt. And someone once told me it won't fill that hole, but it'll help it. And I didn't feel like it would help. I just didn't because it would never be Jaden. I still, it, even if I have 10 babies, you know, I would always have the one that I carried, and he didn't make it. So I, I ne- we never tried to recreate this family. He's moved on and he's had kids, you know, since then. And, you know, I did go through a period of, God, why do you keep letting him have kids? Like, hmm. why, did, why did you take mine? But I understood, well, I understand now that God needed to break every tie that connected me. To that relationship. And I didn't need to have, where well, I have 18 years of raising Jaden and so I'll be connected to him for 18. For me, my, my understanding or revelation of it is God needed to sever every tie that would allow me to keep myself connected there. And not because he was a horrible or a bad person, but because he wasn't the person for me. And if I could have made it fit, I would have.
0: Hmm. Are you scared to have kids now? You
1: know, to be honest, I, I don't know. I tell people that I'm not, but I honestly don't know. I, what I do know is that God will never allow me to experience what I experienced again. I believe, though it's that what God wanted me to get from it, though it took me a long time, I passed that test. I go back and forth Want kids or kids are too much for me. I always say I'll take a stay-at-home dad, you know, the <laughs> stay-at-home dad, because now I'm used to not, you know, of going on my own. But beyond that, like kids are demanding I have a niece, two nieces and a nephew and a little brother. And I mean, kids are not the easiest little people to deal with. You know, I, I think I'm finally at a place where I can admit that I don't know. I don't think I'm a, my doctor, she asks me every year at my, because I still see the same doctor that delivered my son. She, she tells me, she said, you know, considering your risk and considering your age You know, it's time to start thinking about it. It's time to start thinking. And you know, I'm supposed to see my doctor at the beginning of the year and I have refused to make my appointment. There could be a bit of anxiety there, but then I also, that I want to do it in order this time, Right. that I, I, I truly desire, not just because. It's the standard or because that's what society or the church says, but because my heart's desire is to do it in order so that I eliminate any chances of saying, Keisha, you did anything wrong this time, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and it happens as it's supposed to. And I want to guarantee that overnight help. If I have a husband, he's going to be at home at night. to wake up with that baby, you know, so I, but I, I truly, my heart's desire is to do it in order. Um, so, and I, I, I say I want kids, but it, there's always that end of the conversation that I say, but you know, I'm at risk, you know, when I've talked about it before, I tell people I'm getting older. And I remember that clearly telling me one time, Sarah was 90. Hmm. She had kids, you know, so when when God is ready, his timing is right, it'll happen,
0: I suppose. I know, um, having my son early and being a single mom with him, I know that put a fear in me that I didn't want to be a single parent again. So I said immediately, I didn't want to have any more kids. I never wanted to be a mom, but getting pregnant saved my life. Uh And I call him the baby Jesus. Uh I don't know how he got here through all the ways I was trying not to have him, but it was to slow me down. And, um, it's, it's crazy. But that being a single mom at a young age with him put a fear in me that I didn't want to have any more kids. I didn't care if I got married or whatever else, because you know, what if he leaves, you know, cause I've seen it mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. like, and he, to this day, he's still an only child. Now I do desire to be a parent again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and me and my husband have discussed, you know, maybe adopting, but just like not right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we shall see. So in your darkest moments um, that you go through in life, including that one and including anything that has happened, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going?
1: I have always been told that someone else needs me. And so I think my overcoming, my pushing through on the next person. And I mean that if they can see me push through it, if I can get through it, that someone else can There is nothing special about me. There's nothing magical about me that makes life easier or life situations easy. I, I say things that I mean, that I'm probably not supposed to say at times. You know, um, I have no easier path than anyone else. You know, God hasn't given me a pass in my Current situations, just because I went through so much, so that some other person can see, oh, Tarkisha can be a pushover. You know, who can be too nice? If she can push through, if she can persevere, she has a story, and she's not afraid to share it, and she's not afraid to grab, and I can do the same thing. So the the desire to see someone else overcomes pushes me. And also the knowing that God has purpose wrapped in everything that I experience, that God has a true meaning, a plan, you know, for everything that I experience. He's not allowing me to go through these things. You know, we we hear it often that even when the enemy brings an attack, he has to get permission from God. You know, he can't just say, boom, I'm going to launch this attack against Tarkisha. He has to get permission. And God equips me to face whatever that thing is because he is, I, I feel like, further preparing me and for whatever, knowing that God has equipped me for anything that I face, even though I don't feel prepared, even though I'm not always the strongest, understanding that he's equipped me. I can make it. I can push through. I can survive. So I I believe that knowing that God has fully equipped me, even when I don't feel like it, and knowing that someone's life needs my life helps me to push and persevere
0: through. Good answer. Now, a lot of women go through pain, but a lot of them don't choose to write. So what inspired you to write your story? Actually, it's very... I don't know the correct word but I never thought I would write I was it
1: was December um 3rd of 2017 our bishop was visiting our church and he was preaching and he came from, um, Mark chapter five. And if you know the whole story in Mark chapter five, that's when Jesus was on his way to Jairus you know, as the, but he read the whole, like he read the whole Mark chapter five, basically. And when he got to the end to verse 41, he read, you know, that Jesus took the little girl's hand and said, little girl, I say to you arise. So as he read all of that, Those three words, little girl arise, is the thing that stuck out to me. That's the, uh, that just kept resounding in my ear, in my hearing. It just kept replaying, replaying. So what I generally do when things like that happen, I write it down and I email it to myself. And I won't open the email until I'm ready to address it or deal with it. Hmm. Well... I, it was months later, like December. Fast forward to February of 2018, um, I woke up in the middle of the night, like four o'clock in the morning, couldn't go back to sleep. And at that point, I just kind of start writing my story as to what got me to that point. So basically, my bishop came. This is what Mark 5:41 meant to me. I, I had an outline. I like I said I had probably written a couple of pages, not anything, a a whole bunch, but just enough to say that I had an idea and a plan. And so it may not be the death of a son. It could be a divorce. It could be the loss of a job. It could be, you know, loneliness. It could be anger that someone else needs to know that they can overcome and they need your recipe. They need exactly what your formula is in order to get through. So it then became that if my story can help somebody, God, that's you wrapping it in purpose. Mm -hmm. That's you taking 13 years of hurt and pain and disappointment and wrapping it in purpose. And so getting people to understand, because people get to see what we allow them to see, right? They don't get to see the scars. They don't get to see the crying. They don't get to see those periods of loneliness when you feel like, There's a room of a thousand people, but I am the only one in here, you know, and so it can still get out and do her job. She can still get out and help people. She can still work in ministry, but she's carried all of this. Surely I can follow whatever God did for her and do it for myself. Because again, I say it all the time. There's nothing more special about me than the next person. I tell people all the time, we're all God's favorite. I just make, I'm his favorite Tarquisha. You know, I just make it to where, you know, hey, you're his favorite Valencia. No, nope, there's other Valencias. Okay, you're his favorite Valencia, Griffin Wallace. So if God favors me that much to where he can say, Keisha, I can take you through every bit of this journey where you look unblemished, where you look like you've been in the lion's den, but there's no teeth mark, or you've been in the fiery furnace, but there's no smoke. I can do it for another daughter. I can do it mm-hmm. for another son. You know, God so allow God to refine me through those periods. Then surely they can grab hold to their situation, lay it at his feet, really cast their cares on him and allow him to do it for them as well.
0: That is, um, I love everything you just said and it was a perfect reason to write. And even though, you know, a woman can't or a man will read it and can't relate to losing a child, we've all suffered loss in a Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Who would you recommend this book to? Like who, who did you write it for when you were writing it? I wrote this book.
1: I wrote it for any person that feels like they're defeated. Mm. I always put emphasis when I say they feel like they're defeated because we aren't defeated. We're in a situation that may cause us to look like we're not winning, to look like we are the underdog, but we're not. So it's for any person that has faced a life situation. The enemy places things in our path, though life situations happen and we face tragedy that those very hard situations really can birth some beautiful things. They can birth some businesses. They can birth They can birth relationships and situations. Girl, Arise is for any person that feels like that I had no purpose. There was nothing more for me. I was going to school. I was forming a career, but I wasn't fully happy. Like now in my life, I am happy. So it's for that person that says, you know what? There was something that hurt me 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, and I'm stuck in that place. Hmm. Anything that caused you to feel defeated. I tell guys all the time, if you want, if you press and you want me to just write a version that says little boy arise, I'll do that because this just came from the scripture. If you can get past the little girl arise, then, you know, um, it, it, it can help everybody. The, the little, the, connotation of the little girl for me is that it's that little girl that's stuck on the inside that little girl inside of me that was stuck when Jaden died like Mm. i got older i matured in some areas but purpose was stuck you know it Mm. was it was just stifled down and so it's me the current me speaking to that little girl that neglected purpose that abandoned purpose that said forget it. It's me speaking to her. It's time to rise up. It's time to forgive. It's time to eliminate distractions. It's time to set a plan. It's time to understand that you are purpose. It's time for you to speak up, you know? And so, I tell people all the time that you can get, it's not a little girl being demeaning or trying to devalue where you are, but it's that it's the figurative little girl. It's the little girl that was so hurt, bruised and battered that she stayed in that place. And as she grew up purpose stayed where Mm. it was and it never progressed to where it's supposed to be.
0: That's a word right there. (laughs) Speaking of words, uh, what, how would you describe yourself in one word? You only um, get one. Okay. One word. <laughs> Determined. Mm. Determined. And why is that your one word? Because in spite of it all,
1: God is going to do something great. In my life and I am determined to see it through I am I am determined I don't care how many closed doors I have to face how many periods of depression or anger or upset how many lonely moments I'm determined to press through and see you know there's that song I will see the goodness of the Lord like while I'm living I I want my mansion in heaven, but I want all things great. And I'm not just talking about material things, but the things that he has for me, you know, in the kingdom of God, in the, in ministry, in career, in business, like I'm determined that every setback has a comeback. Mm. that Every down moment has an up to it, you know? So yeah, determined.
0: Okay. So, If I ask the three closest people to you, how would they describe you in one word?
1: Probably probably giving. I would definitely say that many people around me will describe me as giving.
0: I don't know how many people would say that about me. I think I'm a giving person, but I think most people would, they use the term drill sergeant Uh to describe (laughs) me. Um, I've seen some of the birthday posts today on Facebook and a couple of the people that know me use the term drill sergeant, but I'm going (laughs) to deal with them later. Yeah. (laughs) So do you plan to write another book? Have you started or you're just waiting?
1: Well, I do have plans to write. I tell God all the time. I absolutely love what I do, love my job and all that. But it was a task to write, have my private practice, and work my full-time job. I have actually, since um, seeing you in January, I've released a journal And so, of course, a journal is not as much writing as a book, but I do believe God has given me two more projects. Um, He gave me one as I was wrapping up Little Girl Arise, and I've just kind of jotted things down about it. My my coach advised that, you know, I take my time with my first book, really allow it to create some substance and get its footing before I try to rush and get something else out. And I'm off. At first, I'm like, no, I better keep going while I have this momentum. No, I better take that break and appreciate the break. Yeah. And then here, I guess within the last month or two, I clearly heard guys speak another um, title to me. Um, and I'm excited about that second one. So I honestly don't know which will come first, you know, um, but, but I do have plans to eventually write again.
0: It is a task.
1: It, it, is. it is. It's demanding. It's demand and I mean I, I I'm a counselor, so I I talk to people all day. I'm writing assessments, writing notes. So to come home and write some more is sometimes very demanding. I mean, I remember I took my nails off. I stopped I started getting my nails <laughs> you know, just a natural length. I was like to get home yeah. in shape, you know, to make so that I was more efficient. I told God, you know. Can you give me a typer this time? <laughs> you know, somebody I can dictate. The first time is a funny story. First time I asked God for a ghostwriter. Mm. And he sent me a ghostwriter. Except she wasn't a ghostwriter. When I talked to my writing coach, like during our first um, call, and I told her, I said, you know, I told God that I, that I was going to use a ghostwriter to write this book because I saw um, someone on TV was using a ghostwriter. And she says to me, she's in my sorority. She said, do you know my line name is Ghostwriter? I was like, what? Are you serious, you know? I'm like, God, you are mm-hmm. amazing at what you do. You sent me what I asked for, yeah. but I was not specific enough, you know? So, yes, yeah, so I, I told God, I said, so, Lord, I'm being specific this time. Can you send me a type or somebody? I'm going to tell them what to write, and they just typed it for me.
0: Or you could get one of those programs. Yes, where I can speak it. And you just got to check it. But yeah. to me, because I'm a natural born typist, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So I think my love of writing and the ideas flow as I type. Yes, yes, I agree. I definitely agree there. And I do understand what having to get your nails down to the nubs to yes. get those words out. It's like, it's not a pretty... At, uh,
1: my um, at work is like Tarkisha. We never see you without your nails done. Like right. once, because at one point I'm like, I'm just not even going to get them polished. Like I was typing so much, I was like, trust me, it's a process. Don't because I did not put out that I was writing in the beginning stages. Right. I, you know, I kind of, God actually told me to keep it to myself, and I was obedient, mm-hmm. you know, and so it helped me get my project completed.
0: With you being a, a counselor, do you feel like it helped you write? I do. Okay. I do. It, it helped me because
1: I'm a natural talker. I, I used to get in trouble all through school because I talked too much. Um, it was uh, an adjustment shifting as a counselor to talk. I mean, to not talk as much more than my clients. Right. Um, So writing was allowed me to get it all out uninterrupted. I did not have to hear myself say it. I didn't have to repeat myself 10 times. Uh, And then to even be able to think about delivering it in a way that other people will receive it. Because after working with so many different types of people had different, um, presenting issues or concerns, I had a better understanding of how to deliver it so that I wasn't offensive or Mm. belittling or, you know, where I didn't become defensive or too preachy or too repetitive to them either. But I could really kind of, I, I remember my writing coach told me, write like you were sitting talking to your friend. And I have lots of friends from college who call me and they're like, girl, is like sitting here talking to you, like reading this. <laughs> and these are people who were with me during this time. They're like, it's like you sitting on the couch with me and I'm having a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and I'm talking to you, you know. And so it, I was able to use, you know, some of my conversational skills that I developed, you know, just in general um, interaction with people but also with my clients because Little Girl Arise, it's, it's like a teaching tool and resource, and so I wanted people to understand the concepts, and not being in a judgmental way, but in a way of how this will help you if you choose to use it. Because at the end, I, I say it in the book: some people who read this book are not going to be ready. I remember I was at an at an event, and a lady she asked me, she said is this one of those books that's going to make you dig up stuff and deal with all kind of stuff and, and, you know, make you feel. And I said, possibly. I said, it's, I like to call it a processing book. Little girl is a not a page turner to where you just going to flip, 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 but it's a processing book. And she said, Oh, she said, I know I might sound real ignorant right now. And I really don't mean to, mm-hmm. she said, but, I don't have any time for healing right now. I don't have any time to dig that up and, you know, do all that. And I told the lady, she probably was blown away with my response, but I told her I understand. I said it took me nine years to finally sit and go through and process my own pain. And so I said in the book, before she ever said that to me, I said in the book, for those of you who are not ready, I'm here to wait with you. And then to be here with you whenever you decide, now I'm ready. Because everyone is not ready to deal with their pain. They're not ready to deal with their past. They're not ready to open that closet for all, you know, it's packed full, you know, and for it to all come tumbling out, we're just not ready for that at times. So I tell people, you know, don't try to rush through it. This this book once you purchase it is yours forever, you know. So take your time with it because it it when you are truly ready to heal, this is you know it's a tool that's going to help you get there.
0: That's a great response. Thank. That's you. a great response that you gave her because somebody else may not have responded the same way. Mm-hmm. Um. So speaking about the book and everything, how can the audience get the book and connect with you? Okay.
1: So um, if you want a signed copy of the book, you can email me at TarkishaWrites, it's T-A-R-K-I-S-H-A W-R-I-T-E-S at gmail.com. I will be happy to mail you a copy a signed copy there there's actually a book, a workbook, and a purpose minder um The book is fifteen dollars the workbook is ten the purpose minder is ten or you can get the entire bundle for $30. And then, of course, there's an additional shipping fee, but again, I can give out all that information um, when you email me at TarkeishaWrites at gmail.com. If you're not so concerned about a signed copy, you can go to um, the African American Literature Book Club website and purchase the book there, and the book is also available on Amazon. The book, the workbook, and the purpose mind there are. Now, you don't get the bundle deal, you know, when you purchase on Amazon. Um, but if you go to my to either email me at tarkeshawrites at gmail.com or look at my website, which is SOAR, S-O-A-R, counseling, B-R, dot com, you know, there's the instructions on how you can order directly through me to get a signed copy or how you can go through the African American Literature Book Club to purchase a copy.
0: Awesome. And I will make sure all of those links are posted. If you can think of one thing you would want the audience to take away from our session tonight, what is that one thing you would want them to take away from it?
1: I, I would definitely say is that our circumstances, our life tragedy in situations that we face, they are definitely not meant to beat us down. But they are truly meant to propel us to purpose, to to fulfill that thing for which God created us for. Those things are training tools. Those are tests. Those are are things that build our endurance and our momentum. They're they're the equipping stage, you know. So often we want to be great. You know, we want our name to be great. We want to be out there. We want to, you know, be acknowledged for doing great things. But even myself, we want to skip that preparation period. And I say, you know, in the book, preparation hurts. You know, if you want to be great, you have to be willing to go... Fighters that are great, athletes that are great, they didn't just become great because boom, they got put in the game and they had skill, but they had to go through some issues where their endurance was tested, where their stability was tested, where their faith in themselves was tested. So I want people to understand that like tragedy and chaos and situations, they are not designed to completely tear us to shreds and tear us apart but they are truly designed to get us to where we're supposed to be in life. And that's fulfilling the purpose for which God created us.
0: Yay. Great tip. Well, Kings and Queens, you have heard a great discussion tonight with Ms. Tarkisha Wallace. I'm going to reflect on my training tools, my pain, my, my training for this battle called life that I deal with every day. Go ahead and tell us your takeaways from tonight's show by connecting with us on Instagram and Facebook at The Define You. Thanks so much for listening to the show and visit Valencia G. Wallace for more episodes, updates, guest information, and more. And remember, your past doesn't define you. It gives you definition and what you do with that is up to you. Pens and papers down. Class is officially over.